Hi, this is Leon Nafok. You're listening to the Audible original podcast, Fiasco, The AIDS Crisis. I'm here to tell you that there is a new season of Fiasco coming soon to Audible. It's a series about the 1984 shooting of four black teenagers on the New York City subway by a white man who thought he was about to be robbed. The incident turned the shooter into a symbol of vigilante justice and forced a national reckoning over crime, fear, and racism. Fiasco Vigilante will be available on July 27th only from Audible. Visit audible.com slash fiasco to learn more and sign up for your free trial. Previously on Fiasco. Many in this nation are getting anxious. There are battles going on in county offices all over the state. Republican demonstrators stormed the hallways. They were pounding on the glass. I mean, people were really fired up. There will be no more counting of votes in Miami. Gore made a conscious decision that he would fight in the courts, but not on the streets. Let's turn now to Palm Beach County, where the canvassing board is trying to beat a deadline of 5 p.m. today. The Secretary of State has apparently decided to shut us down with approximately two hours left to go. I hereby declare Governor George W. Bush the winner of Florida's 25 electoral votes. What by any reasonable standard is an incomplete and inaccurate count. When Secretary of State Catherine Harris certified the results of the Florida election for George W. Bush, the Texas governor took the opportunity to affirm the inevitability of his presidency. Secretary Cheney and I are honored and humbled to have won the state of Florida, which gives us the needed electoral votes to win the election. It was a strategy that Bush and his team had been using since the recount started. Whenever possible, they would try to make it seem like Bush was already president-elect. They would leak the names of cabinet members he was recruiting. In Texas today, Governor Bush had a conspicuous meeting with General Colin Powell. They'd have him give speeches in settings that evoked the White House. I understand there's still votes to be counted, but I'm in the process of planning in a responsible way a potential administration. And they would insist over and over that he had already won Florida not once, but twice. Bush won twice! Bush won twice! After the certification ceremony, there was an extra element of posturing to Bush's rhetoric. Because even though the election in Florida was now technically over, Bush knew full well that the Gore campaign was not giving up. The vice president's lawyers have indicated he will challenge the certified election results. I respectfully ask him to reconsider. Gore and his lawyers had just one move left. They were going to formally contest the outcome of the election. And they would do so by filing a so-called contest lawsuit naming the Bush campaign and the Florida Secretary of State as defendants. Obviously, the great sensitivity in the Gore campaign now to make the case to the American people that, no, this is not over. The Gore team had fought desperately to avoid the situation they now found themselves in. If only they could have put more points on the board before Florida's vote count was certified, it could have been Bush trying to overturn the outcome of the election. Instead, Gore was now officially a sore loserman trying to claw his way back from the dead. And he was running out of time. As Florida's ticking clock becomes a second adversary in the desperate search for votes. They need decisions. They need them yesterday. They need counts. They need the counts right away. We've gone from protest certification last night and now contest. Well, I think it's an uphill battle. Not impossible, but I think it's a very difficult row to hoe. And, uh, the Gore team's mission was to convince a judge that the election results did not accurately reflect the will of Florida voters. Step one was to figure out what happened before, during, and after Election Day that cast doubt on the legitimacy of the outcome. 
The big question as we approach the contest phase was, what should we be contesting? This is Jeremy Bash. In 2000, he was a 29-year-old doing policy work for the Gore campaign. When the recount started, his law degree earned him a junior spot on the legal team in Tallahassee. I had never practiced law a day in my life. I had served as a law clerk for a federal judge. But on election night, they said, anybody who's a lawyer, uh, if you were working in Nashville, Tennessee, at the Gore campaign headquarters, you were told to go home and pack for three days and come back. It ended up having to last 36 days for the full recount. Bash had been in Florida for about three weeks when Bush's victory was certified and the contest phase of the election began. Bash remembers listening in as the campaign's top lawyers briefed Gore and his political advisors on what could happen next. The legal team presented to the campaign leadership a variety of options. And in that meeting, we laid out all the various ways we had suspected that either Democrats' effort to vote had been denied or Republicans engaged in some quote-unquote dirty tricks to prevent Democrats from voting. Some members of the Gore team felt they should include as many grievances as possible in their complaint. They favored a two-pronged approach, fighting to count likely Gore votes that had been unfairly thrown out, while also fighting to throw out likely Bush votes that had been unfairly counted. In this maximalist version of the contest lawsuit, the Gore lawyers would object to the counting of military ballots that lacked proper postmarks and signatures. These were the overseas absentee ballots you heard about in our previous episode. They would also bring up a controversy involving thousands of absentee ballot applications that had come in without voter ID numbers. Republican officials had quote-unquote fixed the applications by writing in those ID numbers by hand after they were received. And the resulting ballots had been counted anyway. Not everyone on the Gore team wanted to go into the contest guns blazing. Here again is Jeremy Bash. My view was that if we were going to take this thing to court, if we were going to file the first contest of a presidential election in U.S. history, it should be on the strongest, narrowest, most ironclad grounds that we could stand on. We didn't want the voters to think that we were throwing everything against the wall to see what would stick, that we were really focusing only in the areas where we thought that a full recount was necessary. Bash had arrived at this conclusion by way of his daily interactions with journalists who were covering the recount and who would come to him with questions about the Gore team's legal strategy. There was just deep skepticism about what we were doing. And in general, their approach and their attitude was Gore is trying to undertake these uh, Herculean efforts to, to reverse uh, the election result. Any sign that he's considering a concession speech? The time is fast approaching to accept the certified results in Florida and concede the election. And one congressional Democrat has said publicly that Gore should throw in the towel. It was quite dispiriting, actually, because the whole vibe of the reporting was that Gore was behind, we were behind, and that we were trying to do something fairly unprecedented in American history to undermine what had already been decided. Apparently many Americans are ready for this election to be over. A new ABC News Washington Post poll shows 60% of people say Vice President Al Gore should concede the election, but 35% feel Mr. Gore should... In the end, Gore's lawyers decided to limit the scope of their lawsuit rather than going with the kitchen sink approach. So instead of trying to get any Bush votes thrown out, they would focus exclusively on getting more Gore votes counted. First and foremost, that would mean asking for the unfinished hand recounts in Palm Beach and Miami-Dade to be completed, this time using a more lenient standard for determining voter intent. 
The Democrats trying to make the case now that there are roughly 15,000 or so votes that have never been counted or at least never manually inspected. When it came time to pull together the documents for the contest filing, Jeremy Bash stood by the office printer with Dexter Douglas, another lawyer working for the Gore campaign. Together, they waited for a copy of the complaint to come out. And we were waiting and waiting and waiting, and I said, it, sound, it feels like, Dexter, we're sitting here waiting for a baby to be delivered. Douglas, who died in 2013, had been agitating for a more aggressive approach. He thought the Gore team was making a mistake in being so focused and meek. And he said, well, is it going to be a boy or a girl? And we kind of chuckled about that. And then when the paper rolled off the printer, we both read it, and he said, well, it's a boy. It's got very small balls, but it's a boy. It's hard to say how much of a chance Al Gore really had at this point. But the Bush campaign and their allies were not taking anything for granted. While Gore's lawyers took the extraordinary step of contesting the election, Republicans in the Florida state legislature were setting the stage for a Hail Mary of their own. The state legislature here in Tallahassee is moving rapidly to try to take control of this election away from the courts. If the plan worked, the Republicans in the Florida state legislature would be able to deliver the state's 25 electors to Bush, no matter what. I'm Leon Nafok. From Luminary Media and Prologue Projects, this is Fiasco. The Republicans here in Tallahassee brought down the hammer tonight. They would essentially wipe out the entire election. If you do not like political chaos, it's about time to head for the storm cellar. When they had offered me the bulletproof vest, I think that scared me more than anything else did. Those couple of hours today were just positively explosive. This week, the threat of a constitutional crisis hangs over Tallahassee as both Democrats and Republicans prepare to cross lines never before crossed in modern politics. The Florida state legislature was a lopsided body. In the state Senate, Republicans outnumbered Democrats 25 to 15. In the state House, Republicans outnumbered Democrats 77 to 43. It was a fact of life in Florida that if Republicans in the state legislature rallied around an idea, they could take it all the way without any Democratic support. Good afternoon, everyone. I hope uh, those of you that aren't from Florida are enjoying your Florida vacation, and our economy appreciates your help. That's John McKay, the Republican president of the Florida State Senate at the time of the recount. A few hours after the Gore team filed their contest lawsuit at the Leon County Courthouse in Tallahassee, McKay held a press conference. He took the opportunity to lay out his view of how the state legislature could help rescue Florida from its ongoing political nightmare. The uh, U.S. Constitution and the federal law vest the legislature with the ultimate authority to designate the manner of appointing presidential electors. To, to grasp what McKay was proposing, it helps to have a literal understanding of what the Electoral College is and what it means in practice to be a presidential elector. Most people don't realize that when they vote for president, they're not voting directly for their candidate. They think they're voting for a presidential candidate, but they're not. They're voting for electors that have been put up by each of the parties. Basically, each state gets to pick a certain number of electors to represent them in the Electoral College. And when you vote for president on election day, you're actually voting for the electors that have been chosen by your candidate's political party. So, for instance, when Bill Clinton won Florida in 1996, the Democratic Party sent a slate of 25 Democratic electors 
to vote in the Electoral College on Florida's behalf. All of this happens on a strict schedule. In 2000, all 538 electors around the country were supposed to cast their votes on December 18th. By December 18th, those electors must send their votes to Washington. On January 6th, the new Congress certifies the vote. January 20th, a new president is inaugurated. So a little over a month before the new president would be inaugurated. Crucially, federal law also called for each state to choose its electors six days before the Electoral College vote took place. December 12th is key, the day Florida certifies its electors. On the day Gore filed the contest lawsuit and Florida Senate President John McKay gave his press conference, that was a little more than two weeks away. If unresolved by the 12th, then the legislature has the authority and may have the responsibility to step in to determine and communicate to Congress Florida's electors. It was McKay's view that all the suing and hand-counting and contesting that Al Gore was doing was placing Florida's electoral votes in jeopardy. McKay and his fellow Republicans feared that if all the legal wrangling wasn't over by December 12th, Florida would be left out of the Electoral College vote altogether, and none of Florida's 6 million ballots would count at all. The Republicans found their solution in Title III, Chapter 1, Section 2 of the U.S. Code, which said that the state legislature had the power to intervene. Here again is McKay. I did not want Florida's voters' votes not to be counted, and if I remember correctly, about 6 million people voted that year. I wanted to make sure those votes were counted, and I hoped that the court system would resolve it, but if they didn't, the legislature had to be prepared to go into session, or else everyone's votes in Florida would not be counted. The Democrats in Florida did not buy this rationale. They were convinced that the Republicans were scheming to deliver Florida's electors to Bush, regardless of how Gore's contest lawsuit turned out, or who ultimately prevailed in the state's popular vote. Angry Democrats charging today that that would be little more than a naked attempt to fix the election for George W. Bush. We should not serve as an insurance policy for a Bush presidency. To go down this road is to shake the very foundations of our democracy. As they saw it, McKay and the Republicans were laying the groundwork for a power grab, an unconscionable end run around Florida's electorate. They were going to change Florida law after the fact to say that the, the ballots people had cast on election day had zero impact on Florida's electors, that instead that the legislators would meet and they would elect a slate of electors. This is Ron Klain, who serves as the top legal strategist on Gore's recount team in Florida. So they would essentially wipe out the entire election. You know, their basic argument was, hey, it's a mess, it's confusing. How about this? How about we let these fine legislators over here decide whether or not Bush or Gore will be president? McKay rejects this characterization. He told me that he only grudgingly endorsed the idea of the so-called end run, and though he was prepared to carry it out if it looked like Florida's electors wouldn't otherwise be seated in time, he shuddered to think of the precedent it would set. I, I was concerned, and I'm still concerned, that if you had similar circumstances and you had a uh, rabid legislature, that the partisanship would trump common sense. And I thought that the legislature acting to select a presidential candidate could perhaps, a hundred years from now, give precedent where a legislature might do that. And I didn't want to be part of giving somebody a blueprint 
for ill purposes. You're saying you didn't want to do this. Right. Because you didn't want to set a precedent Correct. for someone else down the line to take over an right. election. And the Democrats, as they saw you doing this, said, that's what you're doing. You're trying to take over this election. So what was your rebuttal to that? My rebuttal would have been, had anybody asked me that question, I've postponed this as long as I can possibly postpone it without jeopardizing the votes of six million Floridians. Even as plans for the legislative end run solidified in the Capitol, Gore's effort to contest the election was just getting started. We're expecting in 10 minutes for two lawyers for Al Gore to walk into this courthouse, the Leon County Circuit Court in Tallahassee, and officially challenge the results of the presidential election in the United States of America in the year 2000. The two lawyers... It was November 27th when Jeremy Bash and Dexter Douglas took the contest lawsuit out of their office printer and walked it over to the courthouse. Cameras flashed around them as journalists tried to capture the historic moment. As the attorneys for Al Gore come into that courthouse and file their contest to the results, as you can see here, walking across with some degree of, uh, of uh, consciousness and ceremony, albeit somewhat informal. Here again is Jeremy Bash. I held the pleadings in my hand and I slid the complaint under the glass window. It was the first contest of a presidential election in U.S. history that I filed with my own hands. And uh, the staff at the Leon County Courthouse took the pleading they turned their back on us and they went to the back of their workspace and they spun a wheel. What will happen is it will be assigned to a judge. A judge will then set a date for a hearing. The wheel, which was actually just a computer program, would determine which judge from the Leon County Circuit Court would be assigned to preside over the contest. Going into this gamble, Tallahassee native Dexter Douglas had given the Gore team permission to be optimistic. In his opinion, most of the judges in the pool would be receptive to their arguments. And they pulled a name off of the wheel and they came back and they said, you have been given Judge Saul's. Um, that's what the wheel has given you. And Dexter Douglas, he motioned at me like, don't say anything. But he kind of just shook his head. He said, can I motion, come with me. And we scurried back down the hallway into the elevator. We were followed by the press. And once the elevator doors closed and the press was out of earshot, Dexter just said to us, he said, that's a bad seed. That's a bad draw. Judge Saul's is not good for us. Judge N. Sanders Saul's was a lifelong North Florida conservative. He also had a contentious history with the Florida Supreme Court, which many Republicans perceived as being biased towards Gore. Judge N. Sanders Saul's and his run-ins with the Florida Supreme Court, his being a very strict constructionist, and here's a case... Almost immediately, the Gore team realized they had to get the contest lawsuit out of Saul's courtroom one way or another. They briefly considered asking him to recuse, but they decided against it. Instead, they set out to lose as quickly as possible. Here again is Gore recount strategist Ron Klain. In the few minutes after it happened, as we were sitting around discussing trial strategy... And it was very simply this. Uh, we need to lose, and we need to lose fast. The faster they could get a ruling out of Saul's, the Gore team figured, the faster they could appeal the case and get it in front of the Florida Supreme Court. At least there, they would have a chance. As the battle in the Florida arena shifted to the legal arena, the Gore campaign brought in a heavyweight. His name is David Boys, and he's a legend in his own time. A New York lawyer with an enviable record and a quirky personal style. 
David Boys was in a meeting with Calvin Klein when one of Gore's friends called his law office and asked him to join the recount effort in Florida. Boys was representing Klein in a trademark case that was supposed to go to trial soon. But he wasn't about to say no to helping the vice president. Even at that stage, we knew it was an important case. We knew it was a case that was going to involve historic decisions. And to have an opportunity to have a front row seat and maybe even be a participant uh, was something that would have been hard to turn down. Boys had won some of the most spectacular lawsuits of the past 15 years. He had represented the federal government in a monopoly case against Microsoft. He had also represented the New York Yankees in an antitrust suit against Major League Baseball. Boys was known for speaking in court without notes and for showing up to arguments wearing sneakers. To fill out the picture of the eccentric genius, he was frequently seen eating candy or ice cream. Last year's Lawyer of the Year, according to the National Law Journal, profiled in Vanity Fair and People Magazine, the litigator-in-chief. Boys was responsible for crafting the lose-fast strategy in front of Judge Sauls. Instead of calling dozens of witnesses in order to prove that manual recounts were needed in Palm Beach and Miami-Dade, Boys just wanted to keep things moving. The December 12th deadline for seating electors was weighing on him. And if the Gore team's endgame was to get the case to the Florida Supreme Court and then have the ballots counted by hand, they had to get through the Sauls trial as efficiently as possible. To save time, Boys asked Sauls to order the ballots from Miami-Dade and Palm Beach transported to Tallahassee. That way, if the judge did decide to do a manual recount, at least the ballots would already be there. We wanted to get the ballots up in Tallahassee so that they could be counted quickly. We didn't want to waste another day after a decision getting the ballots up there to be counted. After Judge Sauls granted Boyce's request, the 1.1 million ballots cast in Miami-Dade and Palm Beach were placed in boxes and driven up to Tallahassee in trucks. More than 460,000 ballots from Palm Beach County were packed into a rider truck and driven to the state capitol in Tallahassee today. A woman named Ivy Corman, who worked in the Miami-Dade election supervisor's office, was assigned to watch over the ballots as they made the trip. When all of the ballots needed to go up for storage in Tallahassee, it was loaded by warehouse personnel. We got it all in there. Everything was locked up, and that was it, and we just took off. The 600,000 ballots, more than two tons worth, that were loaded up and sent by truck from Miami to Tallahassee today. As the truck sped down the highway, flanked by law enforcement vehicles, TV news helicopters glided above and broadcast the journey live. The election battle as television spectacle in the company of police SWAT teams. More than a million ballots from Miami-Dade and Palm Beach counties driven in a convoy to the state capital, Tallahassee. And then the struggle... Ivy Corman remembers feeling like she was part of a huge production. They had the SWAT team come and we were going to have a policeman... Uh, a SWAT member and myself with the ballots in one truck, then an empty truck in case this truck broke down, then another policeman. Then we had cars of Republican officials, Democratic officials. We had newspaper reporters, everybody. There must have been at least a caravan of 30 cars and a helicopter. The final installment of that million ballot convoy delivered from Miami today. The caravan arrived in Tallahassee in the late afternoon of December 1st. Did you help unload the truck? Oh, heck no. <laughs> no, I didn't. We, uh, you know, signed over custody to the Leon County Supervisor of Elections and said goodbye, thank you, and that was that. 
In the end, despite repeated prodding from the Gore team, Saul's declined to count or even look at the ballots that had come in from Palm Beach and Miami-Dade. Instead, he listened to testimony from a handful of expert witnesses, including a statistician who had studied voting technology and an inventor who had helped design the punch card machine. Their expert witness points to flaws in the Votomatic's design, years of wear, and voter confusion. This cover, this machine, is full to the brim with chads. On December 4th, after two days of testimony, Sauls was ready to rule. We're watching uh, Judge Sandra Sauls' courtroom. Uh, the attorneys have filed in, David Boyce and his legal team. They're waiting for the judge's decision, which we expect to be announced within a matter of minutes here. Uh, while we wait for that, let's call upon our... Sauls read his decision out loud in court. He was ruling against Gore on every aspect of his complaint. In this case, there is no credible statistical evidence and no other competent substantial evidence to establish a reasonable probability that the results of the statewide election in the state of Florida would be different. Judge Sauls turned down pretty much every element of the Gore case presented over this weekend for... Uh, the Jeremy Bash and the other Gore lawyers have been expecting Sauls to rule against them. In fact, they already had their appeal notice ready to go. I was sitting in the court when Judge Sauls issued his ruling, and I had the appellate notice already written. It was in a manila folder. And as soon as Judge Sauls issued his ruling, the trial team motioned to me, go. Within a matter of minutes, I was down at the Florida Court of Appeals, banging on the window, banging on the door, hoping anyone would come forward so I could hand them this document. Finally, we found someone to take the document. It was official. The contest lawsuit was being kicked up to the Florida Supreme Court. Yeah, actually, Joey, I've already been on the phone with two Gore campaign uh, spokesmen on this. The first, Doug Hathaway, uh, said that, quote, everybody expected this to be in Florida Supreme Court by dinner time today, regardless of what this judge said. Uh, so here we go. Uh, most of you uh, have reported that both sides said today that if they lost, they would appeal to the Florida Supreme Court. We said it. They said it. Uh, they won. We lost. We're appealing. Uh, this is going to be resolved by the Florida Supreme Court. The Florida Supreme Court's decision to hear Gore's appeal in the contest lawsuit was like a bat signal to the Republicans in the Florida state legislature. Suddenly, it seemed all the more crucial to have a backup plan in place. Who could say how long the case would take to resolve itself? And now that these liberal judges had their hands on it, who could say whether it would be resolved in the right way? The Republicans here in Tallahassee brought down the hammer tonight, essentially telling Vice President Gore... They'll award this state's presidential electors to Governor Bush. Not the Florida state legislature was going into a special session in order to start the process of seating Florida's 25 electors. The Republican-controlled state legislature is taking no chances. It's now scheduled a special session to name electors just in case the process is stalled or the state Supreme Court rules against Governor Bush. Tallahassee Democrats were furious, and they tried to link the plan to George Bush's campaign and his brother Jeb. Sadly, I have to say that I believe this is orchestrated. And the only thing missing from the proclamation today was the postmark from Austin, Texas. The Democrats are seething tonight. A senior Gore advisor telling NBC News, quote, the American people will not accept the decision by Florida Governor Jeb Bush and his friends in the Florida legislature to take the decision away from the people and the independent courts. Gore advisor Ron Klain thought it was time for his team to make a contingency plan of their own. There are a lot of ways in which we thought it was possible 
that we would have won and had a court ruling said we won and still the Republican legislators would have gathered at the Florida State Capitol at the appointed time and hour and cast their votes for George Bush. And so we needed a strategy to deal with that. That strategy would come to be known internally as Plan X. Klain called it the Gore team's most extreme thought. You know, the Electoral College doesn't really meet all in one place at one time. When we say the Electoral College, what it is is each state's separate electors, they gather in their state's capital, they cast their ballots there, and the ballots are then transmitted to the archivist of the United States. Now, one of the intriguing things about Florida is it actually has two state capitals. Of course it does. But to be clear, Klain means Florida had two state capital buildings. They were both in Tallahassee. One was fully functional and had been since 1978. The other dated back to the 19th century and had been converted into a museum of Florida history after the new one was built. Now, I know this is going to sound convoluted, but that's because it was. The Electoral College was scheduled to vote for president on December 18th. That was the only day the country's 538 electors could legally cast their votes. So... If the contest lawsuit ended up going Gore's way after the 18th, and he picked up enough votes to overtake Bush's lead, it would still be too late for the Gore campaign to make it count in the Electoral College. To avoid that situation, Ron Klain moved to take advantage of an ambiguity in Florida law, which specified that the state's electors had to gather in Tallahassee, but didn't specify where exactly they had to go. And we had a plan, a contingency plan, to have our electors come to Tallahassee and meet in the old state capitol building and cast their votes for Al Gore and send those votes to the archivist, even as the Bush electors were meeting in the new state capitol and casting their votes for uh, George Bush. Klain knew that Plan X was a zany idea. And the same way Senate President John McKay didn't cherish the prospect of a legislative end run, Klain didn't really want to go through with it. But he felt that the Florida Republicans were giving him no choice. Now, again, we wouldn't have done that unless we had a court order saying that we thought our electors were the right electors. But, you know, we really were planning for every possible contingency here. You might be wondering, what would have happened if Florida had sent in two sets of votes? One from a slate of Bush electors, the other from a slate of Gore electors. Al Gore actually had the same question. His friend, Walter Dellinger, the former Solicitor General, told him the dispute would be resolved in the U.S. Congress. Here's Dellinger. Because the Constitution gives Congress the authority to count the ballots. And any dispute over, you know, who won a particular electoral vote could be resolved by Congress. In this scenario, two envelopes from Florida would be given to Congress. One saying that the state's 25 electors had voted for Gore, and the other one saying that they had voted for Bush. The official count would be overseen by the president of the Senate otherwise known as the sitting vice president, otherwise known as Al Gore. When the votes are open uh, in front of both houses assembled, when the vote is announced, that vote can be overturned or rejected only by an action of both the House and the Senate. Mm -hmm. Vice President Gore is listening eagerly as I am explaining what happens, that whatever envelope is opened will be the vote of Florida. And he says, who decides what envelope to open first? Good question. That was my next question, too. <laughs> and I, I said, you will still be the presiding officer of the Senate. You'll be the one to choose which ballot to open 
Gore wouldn't get to unilaterally declare himself president. But still, he knew how it would look. And he looked at me and said, Walter, I just have one question. Do they have to wait for me to be sworn in before beginning appeasement proceedings, or could they start right then? Live pictures here of the uh, tent city that has grown outside the Florida State Supreme Court. As the Florida Supreme Court prepared to hear Al Gore's appeal in the contest lawsuit, Tallahassee was getting more hectic and media-saturated by the day. Even the lawyers, especially David Boyes from the Gore side and local Florida attorney Barry Richard from the Bush side, walked around like celebrities. Here's Boyes. Everybody recognized Barry Richards and myself. You know, people driving by would shout out to him, don't let them steal the election. Or our supporters would, you know, don't let them, you know, bury our ballots. So, I mean, somebody was always yelling out to you, either encouraging you or trying to discourage you. Today, hundreds of pro-Gore demonstrators rally outside the state capitol. News trucks flooded the area. Protesters arrived early each morning, and with them a crowd of attention seekers who were less motivated by politics by the presence of cameras. There were people dressed in clown outfits. They were having a lot more fun out there than I was having inside the building. That's Charles Wells. He was the chief justice of the Florida Supreme Court in 2000. There was a lady that brought her pet skunk, and it was a great act because she could make that skunk do backward somersaults. It was against this backdrop that on December 7th, the Florida Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Gore v. Harris. Americans may be just hours away from their clearest view yet of who will be the next president. A live picture right now from the Florida Supreme Court. Any moment, oral arguments will begin here in this courtroom. The question before the court was whether Judge Sauls had erred in denying the Gore team's contest petition. The legal standard at play was not exactly objective. According to Florida law, the losing candidate had to show that there had been counting errors that placed the result of the election in doubt. But what that meant was up for interpretation. Good morning and welcome uh, once again to the Florida Supreme Court, uh, where we'll have oral argument this morning in the case of Gore versus Harris. In one corner stood David Boyes. In the other, Barry Richard. And though they looked like sworn enemies in the courtroom, the truth was they liked each other. And when they weren't working, they'd been hanging out together at a sports bar near Boyce's hotel. We were so deep into the weeds of this that in some senses, we were each the only person the other could talk to that cared enough about some of these details to really be interested in talking about it. Uh, you know, even your children and your wife why eyes begin to glaze over sometimes when you are really deeply involved in one of these complicated cases. Boys and Richard took pleasure in competing with each other. One of the things that made it so much fun for me is that David and I were sparring with each other for the fun of it. This is Barry Richard. I've never been much of an athlete, but I suspect that professional athletes enjoy what they do most when they are opposing somebody else who they feel is at the top of his game. And David Boy's at the top of his game. So I, it was a great challenge, and it was fun. It was intellectually stimulating, and I got famous. 
So that was the dynamic at play between David Boies and Barry Richard as they sparred with each other at the Florida Supreme Court. This is a situation in which we have identified specific votes, many of which were agreed by the district court, were votes in which you could clearly discern the voters' intent. You had 215 the positions they took will sound familiar to you. Richard argued that the recount process had already played itself out fair and square, while Boys made the case that getting an accurate vote count should take precedence over any other consideration. The simple argument that I made to the Florida Supreme Court was that Florida law for 100 years had held that what was important was to discern the intent of the voter, and that in order to discern the intent of the voter, in a close election, you would have a manual recount. It was clear from the questions they were asking that some of the Florida justices were sympathetic to Boyce's argument, while others were not. Among the sympathetic ones was Justice Barbara Perienti, who was frustrated with Judge Sauls for refusing to look at the ballots from Palm Beach and Miami-Dade. He never looked at a single ballot. They had been brought up there. He had ordered them up. He never looked at them. Perienti thought it was obvious that looking at the ballots was the best way to figure out who won the election. At one point during the hearing, she and one of her colleagues started asking why Gore was only seeking manual recounts in two counties rather than the whole state. When you have a very close election, you have to have a manual review of those ballots in order to have an accurate tally. But why wouldn't that apply to all the other counties, at least the punch card counties, where there are undervotes, and those votes also haven't been counted? And you've demonstrated that there's legal votes that have not been counted. Why would that not exist in other counties? And why would this not require, if any judicial relief, that be applied in a statewide undervote. I think there are two questions. Prior to oral arguments, a statewide manual recount wasn't even really on the table. Gore had proposed the idea once in a televised address back in mid-November, but Bush had promptly rejected it. Now, with just days left until the December 12th Electoral College deadline, it seemed as though some members of the Florida Supreme Court thought a statewide manual recount was a pretty good idea. Here again is Perrienti. How do you favor three counties with counting undervotes when you don't do it equally for all counties? A statewide manual recount had the potential to be transformative. Though it was hard to predict how exactly the vote total would change, the fact that thousands of discarded ballots might now be back in the mix meant that Gore would have that many more chances to cut into Bush's lead. But not everyone was enthused. Chief Justice Wells had been preoccupied with the upcoming deadline for seating Florida's electors. And it struck him as lunacy to try to undertake such a gargantuan task with so little time left on the clock. I I think it became pretty obvious by the questions that were being asked that the December 12th deadline was not bothering some of my colleagues like it was bothering me. After oral arguments, as the justices began to conference, Perrienti took the position that recounts were clearly needed in Palm Beach and Miami-Dade. But the only way to be fair to every voter in the state, Perrienti thought, was to hand-count all the undervotes that had been cast across Florida. Some of Perrienti's colleagues, including Chief Justice Wells, just didn't think that was possible. I think there was a belief that there was no way that this court could end up ensuring that 
every vote would be counted, that there would always be questions. And so it was better at that time to keep our hands off and let the controversy die because we were approaching a time where there was a feeling that Florida's vote needed to be counted in the Electoral College, and if it lasted much longer, it wouldn't have been. Justice Wells had a more fundamental objection as well. In a race this impossibly tight, there was simply no way to arrive at an objectively accurate vote count. It had become evident to me that we were not going to ever get to a point in in which the margin of victory exceeded the margin of error here to an extent that we could refine it by continuing to re- the, a recount that was so uncertain as to how it was going to be done. And so that this, we had to conclude it. Tensions are high, questions are being asked. What is the verdict? We should find out shortly, we believe. On the afternoon of December 8th, the justices of the Florida Supreme Court released their decision. We're a couple of minutes away from hearing from the Florida State Supreme Court. The scene there on the steps of the Florida Supreme Court in Tallahassee, Florida. We understand. The job of relaying it to the public fell to the court's spokesman, Craig Waters. Waters had been summarizing the decisions of the court and communicating with the press since early in the recount. Whenever reporters saw his podium getting set up on the steps of the Supreme Court building, they knew he would soon be coming out to deliver some news. The crowd of reporters covering the recount had been growing so much that with each announcement, Waters was forced to move his podium up the steps to make room for more spectators. By December 8th, he was perched near the top. We could see the state troopers and the court uh, security officers in plain clothes. We understand that the court spokesman, Craig Waters, will be out very, very shortly. Tensions had been rising throughout Tallahassee for nearly a month by this point. And Waters knew that he was about to reveal the most paradigm-shifting news development the court had delivered to date. It was a frightening thing in a lot of ways. Um, When they had offered me the bulletproof vest, I think that scared me more than anything else did. This idea, I have to wear a bulletproof vest? My God, what's going on here? That's not the Tallahassee I know. Hello, I'm Craig Waters, spokesman for the Florida Supreme Court. The court today has issued its opinion in the case of Albert Gore Jr. versus Catherine Harris, George W. Bush, and others. Paper copies of that opinion... I got out onto the, you know, uh, to the podium and I began reading. I had these lights shining in my face, so I, I couldn't see the crowds very well because, you know, I was blinded. But there was a large piece of metallic equipment nearby that fell over. And the thought that went through my head at that particular point in time is, my God, there's the, there's the bullet. By a vote of four to three, the majority of the court has reversed the decision of the trial court in part. It has further ordered that the circuit court of the Second Judicial Circuit here in Tallahassee shall immediately begin a manual recount of the the approximate... Chief Justice Wells had been outvoted. After all the confusion and delays in Palm Beach and Miami-Dade, every county in the state that hadn't already done so was now going to recount their undervotes by hand. This was an even more stunning decision than the Florida Supreme Court's first in favor of Al Gore, and it sets into motion a potentially chaotic series of events. If you do not like political chaos, it's about time to head for the storm cellar. 
because up until about a few moments ago, I think most people were expecting the Florida Supreme Court to kind of go along with Judge Sauls and bring this to an end, and people were drafting Al Gore's concession speech. Those couple of hours today were just positively explosive. There's been an enormous shift in the political ground. For the Gore team, it was like getting an extra life. Here again is Jeremy Bash. We were overjoyed, and we had popped the cork on some wine and, and cracked open some beers, and, and we had a little celebration there in the law offices uh, that we were working out of. This was far beyond what we had requested, and it was a massive opportunity for us to take a lead in the tallies, which we thought would be critical to regaining some of the political momentum that we had clearly lost. The problem, once again, was time. The Electoral College deadline was now just a few days away. And if it started to look like Florida wouldn't be done counting votes by then, the Republicans in the state legislature were ready and willing to use their power to bring the election to an end. As it turned out, they weren't the only ones. They say that the end is in sight. The wrong will go left, the right go right. On the next and final episode of Fiasco, the Florida recount heads to the Supreme Court. Justice O'Connor said, this is a mess. we got to stop it now, because if we don't stop it now, it's going to go on and on, and it's going to get worse, and Bush is going to win in the end anyways. Fiasco is presented by Luminary and Prologue Projects. If you're enjoying the series and want to hear more, head over to luminarypodcasts.com and subscribe. You can hear bonus episodes from the season, including extended interviews with Florida Secretary of State Catherine Harris and the late Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. You can also check out Season 2 of Fiasco on the Iran-Contra scandal, or Season 3 on the struggle to desegregate Boston's public schools in the 1970s. For a list of books, articles, and documentaries that we relied on to research this episode of Fiasco, click the link in the show notes. Fiasco is produced by Andrew Parsons, Madeline Kaplan, Ula Kulpa, and me, Leon Nafok. Our script editor was Daniel Riley. Our editorial consultant was Camilla Hammer and we received additional editorial support from Lisa Chase. Our music and score are by Nick Sylvester of God Mode, with additional music from Alexis Quadrado. Our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. Music licensing courtesy of Anthony Roman. Audio mix by Rob Byers, Michael Raphael, and Johnny Vince Evans of Final Final V2. Thanks to the NBC News Archive, C-SPAN, CNN, and Channel 20 in Palm Beach, for the archival material you heard in today's show. Thanks for listening.